This episode has a content warning. It touches on self-harm and suicide. If you are suffering or triggered by the themes of this podcast, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14. Welcome to the One Question Podcast, brought to you by Wabi Sabi Studios. I'm your host, Michelle Cox, and I love having unlikely conversations on uncomfortable topics. It's a huge passion of mine, so much so that I wrote a few books a while back that challenge people's notion on living a life more unconventionally. This entire podcast stems around one question. If there was one topic you wish society would talk more about, what would it be? You, you get through it and then you come out the other side stronger. That, that's resilience for me. It's not just about the hardships you face, but it's more about the way you face it and, the, and, and how you come through at the other end of it. Today's guest, Craig Semple, has had an unusual yet fascinating career that has led him to where he is today. Craig was a career detective in the New South Wales Police Force for 25 years, investigating homicides, outlaw motorcycle gangs, and hundreds of other serious crimes. Medically retired from law enforcement in 2013 due to psychological injuries, Craig is now a sought-after keynote speaker and mental health advocate. From his lived experience, he has developed a rare personal insight into the causes, symptoms, treatment, recovery strategies, and the impact of mental illness in the workplace. Craig is the founding director of Mentality Plus, where he has developed and delivered mental health, well-being and resilience education to over 20,000 people all over Australia. He is a master instructor of mental health first aid and an ambassador for the Black Dog Institute. Craig's first book, The Cop Who Fell to Earth, was published recently and is his story of transformation and profound personal growth through exposure to extreme life events. As compelling as a thriller, it is a story of how human endurance, tenacity, sacrifice and belief in something beyond self can ultimately lead to the triumph of good over evil. Craig has a fascinating story and I cannot wait to get stuck in and learn about this amazing human. Craig, it is lovely to sit down with you today. Welcome. Thanks, Michelle. Thanks for having me on. Now, if there is one thing you wish society would talk more about, Craig, what would it be? Resilience. How do we become more resilient? What defines resilience? Big topic. So why is this a topic that is, you know, so important to you? Well, I mean, I'm, as you know, I'm heavily involved in the mental health uh, industry these days and you know, so I'm basically living and breathing it. But I, I, I have a lot of people approaching me these days and, and, and talking about this very topic about resilience. So parents asking, how do we make our kids more resilient? You know, I get the statistics all the time of, of mental health problems in our country and I, I wouldn't describe it as a, like a national emergency. We have got an increase in, in prevalence in mental health problems, like a slow creep. So I, I think a lot of that comes down to just even our view of the world and how we view ourselves but also how we, how we deal with tough times in our life as well. Just a couple of things you said there. I mean, one, to define resiliency for me, you know, how, how do you define 
being resilient, I guess. And then what are the statistics at the moment when you say you referred then about the statistics and growing numbers in Australia? What is happening there? What are those numbers? Because it's probably a topic that I've spoken most about on this podcast. You know, people come on and want to talk more about mental health. So it's clearly an area that is of growing concern, but also, I guess, in a good way, an area that we're talking more and more about, which is great to see as well. Absolutely. It's, it's, and it's one of the things that gives me hope, particularly talking to kids. And I think generationally attitudes are changing, which is good because self-awareness is a, a big part of it, but also self-action, self-responsibility is a huge part of it as well. So, but as far as defining resilience, I mean, for me, and, and it just depends on the individual, for me, resilience is about facing your hardships or adversities you face in your life. You, you get through it and then you come out the other side stronger. That, that's resilience for me. It's not just about the hardships you face, but it's more about the way you face it and, the, and and how you come through at the other end of it. A real simple way to describe that, I've had parents ask me before, how do we make our kids more resilient? And, and my simple answer, I know this is overgeneralising, but it is let them fall over from time to time because when they fall over, they learn to pick themselves up again. So that's even that's just resilience. So Beautiful, simple, yeah. So true, though, in a world of and a time of helicopter parenting. And it's hard, you know, for someone you love so much and you you want to protect them in any facets of life. But it is absolutely, to your point, the lessons that you learn through, you know, going through that tough stuff that does help you further down the track, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's especially as, as kids, I mean, if you don't get an opportunity to find out where your boundaries are, you're not going to know where they are. You're not going to even reach your own potential because, I mean, that's what makes us tough as humans. It's it's basically from time to time we're going to lose a bit of bark, and the only way to do that is to push it. And and, and I'm not not saying that in a in an unsafe or reckless way, but it's just about being given the opportunity not to wrap your kids up in cotton wool so that nothing ever happens to them. Because life, as you and I both know, life is not easy. Life is a struggle. It's tough, but that's what makes it life as well. So trying to protect your kids from that can actually cause more harm down the track because you can't protect them forever. And when they hit the big wide world, and I saw this in my previous career in the police force, was um, yeah, the young recruits coming through. I saw just a little bit of an increase in an inability for, for the younger generation coming through that job, not to be able to handle criticism, maybe even some sort of discipline from time to time if, 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 if it was required. It was just a complete inability, probably from a lack of ever being told that, you failed in your life. It's, it's, it's no pass-fail anymore in life. It's it's no no winners and losers. Everyone gets a prize. It's not real, is it? It's not real. It's not it's not life. And you and I talked a little bit before and you were talking about tough love and it's that's it, actually required. So I don't know. I think we need to get that focus back. I think the world's become uh, a little bit too protective of, of our next generation, but maybe we just need to let them discover the world themselves and, and, and not try to protect them from it. Yeah, and you're point like we need to learn about resiliency and the the you know in lots of different ways I guess and you have a really interesting history 25 years as you know in the police force and most of that as a detective in really tough circumstances and you wrote this incredible book called The Cop Who Fell to Earth which is amazing can you tell us a little bit about what brought you here and the journey you've kind of been on obviously we, we could spend hours I think talking about that and obviously that's what the book covers but you know how you ended up becoming 
such an incredible mental health advocate. You know, you're an ambassador for Black Dog Institute. You have a business that literally consults in this space now and you're having an impact on, you know, thousands and thousands of people. What brought you here, Craig? It's an incredible story. In a nutshell, I was a, a detective for 25 years and I was a pretty tough sort of cop. And I worked a lot in regional areas, homicide, a lot of homicides in my career. And, and it was particularly in the last 10 years of my career up at North Coast, New South Wales, I, I had a huge amount of time invested in outlaw motorcycle gangs. So the sort of environment that I was working in was, and, and, and working on bikies in country areas, not like the city. Because, I mean, in the city, you can lock a couple of bikies up and go home. They don't know where you live. But in the country, well, they knew where I lived. They knew, knew what car I drove, where my wife worked, where my kids went to school. So we had a detective's Christmas party one year and a bikey gang got wind of it and organised a, a pre-planned attack on our Christmas party in front of wives and girlfriends and, and other people as well. And I got glassed and there was a, a couple other people seriously injured. And and from that moment, my whole world became bikies. Like they crossed the line that night, attacking us off duty. And then I lived and breathed them for the next 10 years. And I also, around the same time as the bikey attack, I had one really particularly bad homicide. Without going into all the details, it, it actually was the biggest trigger for PTSD with me. I mean, my bucket had been filling up to that point, which is about 16-year mark. And, and I was probably had a few little warning signs that were creeping in already, but but it was when the nightmares that really kicked in from, from that murder that I truly knew I had a problem and it terrified me. I was absolutely terrified of the fact that, oh, my God, I've let my guard down somehow or other. I've now got a problem and this is potentially career-ending. So I made a really clear choice back then uh, just to keep it secret. I, I had a real fear, misguided as it turned out, but I had a real fear probably mainly because I saw other cops who identified mental health problems exit and, and sort of created this this unrealistic perception that if I put my hand up, the same thing would happen to me. This is one of the reasons I'm such a big advocate now and doing so much edu- work in the education space is that we didn't know what the signs and symptoms to look out for, not only in ourselves, but also our workmates, each other. Didn't know the risk factors, all those sort of things. But I did know that if you start having nightmares about your job, that was the only thing I knew about PTSD was nightmares. So I knew I had a problem there. But I just, I just made my mind up, don't tell a soul, you don't want to lose your job, just lock it up tight and tell no one. My attitude was no one dies of a nightmare, so suck them up, go to work every day, don't tell anyone. Unfortunately for me, you know, that lack of education, ignorance, there's so many other things with post-traumatic stress disorder that are really destructive, particularly in your personal lives, and, and they all fed in through the back door, caused massive chaos for the next eight or nine years I live with it. And, and so I just sort of pushed on, had big issues of sleep, two to five hours sleep a night, super hypervigilant, never could settle down, hair trigger temper, all these sort of things that are very common and emotional numbing with PTSD and caused a lot of problems for my family. Marriage was, was a real struggle through those 10 years. But basically, like anyone dealing with mental health problems, I, I basically fell back on my own coping strategies. And, and two of the big ones was a very common alcohol abuse. We had a big drinking culture in the police force, so... Alcohol helped numb me out, provide some escape. But the biggest thing I turned to to try to outrun it, and, and this, you probably come across this in the corporate world too, Michelle, is that I actually turned to my work as a way to escape. So I buried myself in my work. I just was always trying to plug myself in the adrenaline socket of law enforcement, mostly through intentionally keeping myself under massive loads of stress through, you know, the picking the bikies out and working on them and always putting myself in really dangerous, risky situations I probably didn't need to be 
just get that thrill, that 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 adrenaline hit. Adrenaline kick, yeah. But unfortunately, everything goes up. It's got to come down. It's like your soul. It's a, such a weird, and I, everyone feels differently with this, but it's a this weird kind of juxtaposition of, you know, feeling a bit dead inside uh, because of, you know, your, the numbingness you're trying to do, but then also like to get those kicks, you know, that adrenaline side to do dangerous shit, to just have that sense that you feel alive. Yeah, that's what I mean. I was talking about the emotional numbing. It's sort of you, you start to feel feel a bit dead, but also um, I, I had trouble tapping into normal human emotions, like especially the positive ones, like love. I just couldn't feel any of those good things. And then even at a, I remember going to a funeral. My sister lost her baby soon after being born, and I went to the funeral and I didn't feel anything that day. I was like, and I, even then I, I knew this isn't this isn't natural like i should be feeling something but i think it was just uh, it was a bit of a combination of being desensitized to so much death over so long a period of time but also just that lack of ability to tap into those normal feelings i do now i'm the world's biggest sook i mean i went to a funeral of someone i didn't know <laughs> yesterday and i was tears streaming down my face which is awesome and I, and I and i'm so grateful to have that back now i can't i cry in kids movies when i first met you that was one of the things i thought you know straight away i'm like oh you're soft and gentle and lovely and and i just imagine you were never able to be like that oh what I was when I was back in, in the cops, which I barely recognised myself. The person I am now is a bit of a mixture of who I was before I joined the police and, and, a, and a little bit of what I brought with me from that job as well. And before I joined the cops, I was definitely not someone who relished violence. I, I, I wasn't into fighting back with bullies and all that. I, I'd rather run rather than turn and face it. And But over the years in, in the police, I, I, I really learned, and that was one of the best things about my career, is it really gave me an opportunity to find what my boundaries were and, and what my true potential was. Because it's an extreme job. I mean, you're getting thrown into some life-threatening situations, particularly some of the places I worked. It was quite regular. And over time, I sort of built resilience to fear. And, and I was always looking on a quest to make myself tougher. Even, you know, I was doing bikies. I took out boxing lessons. And I was always going to the gym and keeping myself physically fit. So it was always this quest to be stronger. But, you know, all that, that's just armour around the outside to try to protect myself. And... And when I left the police after everything goes up, it's got to come down, all that stress and everything I was putting myself under, I, I had what I, I used to call a massive mental breakdown, which ended my career. Uh, it was after an 18-month investigation in a biking game. It was one of the biggest jobs I've ever run in my life, and, and it was it was so cool, the achievement. But, you know, five weeks later, I was called up on a ball, balling my eyes out, and, and I was, could never go back to the police again. So just that burnout ended my career. So was it your decision to leave then? Yeah, I didn't really have much of a choice because I, I was wrecked. And so depression was the biggest thing for me. I had PTSD for, for eight or nine years, but the burnout led to uh, like some serious depression. I'd never experienced that before in my life and it floored me. I had no comeback to that for, for quite a number of years. And once I left the police, it was like all the armour that I built around myself all just fell away. And I, and even though I was quite damaged, I actually felt like I was me again to some degree. And, and, I, and over time, I, I learned some things that I could sort of tap into to to start to feel again. And so even though all like I was really tough and I could handle myself in the police and all that stuff, I, I've still got it. It's just tucked away somewhere in a locker somewhere. If I need it, if I ever need it, like to look after my family or whatever, I can always go back and pull that stuff out. But I'd rather not. I'm happy living a bit more of a peaceful life now and, and I and I love that ability to show a bit of vulnerability now and, and to be a bit soft and to cry in the kids' movies and all, and all those sort of things too. 
So what would you change now if you were back there in the force? And, and I guess that's what you're trying to do with your work. What needs to change so that people don't quite go through the same as what you did? The first step with, with the cops is actually having this, some of the gaps I'm feeling now is just getting that education in there. It's still a real slow process. And, and this isn't just the police, it's other emergency services, it's other industries as well. It's not just the law enforcement. It's just get that education out there. That's a starting point. Like people need to know what to look for to, to, that things aren't going too good. Any organisation can get me in there and, and promote mental health and you know, especially self-responsibility and taking affirmative action and, and getting the help when you need it. But at the end of the day, all that investment, all that time, will account for nothing if the, the individual doesn't actually put their hand up when they need to and go and get that help. So, so education is the, the, the key foundation, but then we need to promote self-responsibility, particularly in workplaces. And it's one of the things I think is a, still a problem in, in law enforcement is, is your workplace culture. In the cops and a lot of nursing, other particularly organisations or, or industries where people are working in those those helping roles, they're usually the last to look after themselves. Like it's it's you know they're so I've got to keep powering on. I've got all these people I'm looking after. So I think it's the culture is has got to change a bit. It's interesting. I um, just obviously spoke with a, a doctor recently around you know the medical fraternity, and then I've got some other mates that are you know, in ambulance, like they're paramedics. And I've got three friends that have left that industry recently saying, you know, in terms of the bullying culture and, you know, what's kind of going on about, you know, not being able to look after themselves. So there's one thing, I guess, around taking control and power on your own health and well-being, and, you know, that's I'm a big advocate for that. There's another thing around, you know, organisational challenges where the place where you work doesn't kind of condone or support or, recognize that as well like what, what you you're working in this space you're working with thousands of companies what's your take on that and for people listening that are leaders or owners of businesses what do you feel needs to change in that area well it comes back to education again there i mean with the leadership so what you're talking about there with the ambulance out of all the emergency services those guys are the one my heart goes out to the most they, they just absolutely hammered and they have had some massive leadership cultural issues in, in the ambulance service over, over time. And I know they're working to try to try to fix that up. But, I, you know, I think one of the biggest dramas with the emergency service side of thing is um, they're set under-resourced. It's a real double-edged sword. I want to encourage people to, to get on top of it when, when they know they've got problems. And if that means, you know, they might need to take some time off work, that, that means that someone else has got to pick up that load and they don't have the people to pick up the load. And then so the flow on downstream... It's such a complex issue, Michelle, and it's really difficult with that. But when I was a detective, I thought if I have to go because if I don't, who's going to go and lock up these bikies? I mean, no one can do what I do. And when I left, you know, months down the track, we're going, they're still locking up those bikies. They might not be doing it the way I did it. But then all of a sudden I thought, so, you know, this value I had of myself, it's been, yeah, for all those years, like throwing myself at the brick wall, once you're gone, the machine keeps rolling on. And so I think that people need to realise that too. It's a stop every now and then, reflect, where am I at? What do I need to do to get myself back on track? Self-awareness is such a massive key on it. And, and that ability too to sort of, I don't know, say no sometimes. One of the things I wanted to pull on the thread with you is around, you know, resilience and going through some tough stuff and you've gone through clearly and you've seen a lot of stuff in your life and your career. 
and how you can use that, I guess, to make yourself better. But also, you know, how do you not dwell in that when shit happens to you in life? Do you believe that they have to hit rock bottom before they can potentially crawl their way out of that? I'm a big advocate trying to promote the opposite, actually getting on top of it when the wheels start getting a bit wobbly rather than till that waiting till the wheels have completely fallen off. It's but, you know, for, for people like me, it's one of those things of burnout, which is becoming a, a real pro- common problem these days, um, is, is not being aware of the warning signs and, and not even believing you're actually at the cliff edge of, of that burnout. But you don't know until you fall off it. And, and that's what I did. And for three years, like I, I, was, I was medically retired from the police force only nine months after that job I finished. And, but the next three years, I went through a, a whole horrible, horrible journey of of really high anxiety with a PTSD, then I crash and burn into these dark pits of depression. And, and I had, had a real battle with suicide for those whole three years. And it's a topic I talk about a lot now because it's I know a lot of people feel uncomfortable about it, but it's only because we don't talk about it enough. But it's, it's such a common problem out there. I, lots of people go through tough times in their life and experience suicidal ideations, right? It's, it's actually quite normal. Thankfully, most people don't act on them, but... Over time, there's a few things that happened over those three years I've talked pretty openly about in the book and and then I ended up acting on my suicidal thoughts. So I survived a suicide attempt basically and but I ended up in a hospital emergency ward and, and, and so I did hit rock bottom. Sadly, I probably needed to get to that point before I started looking up and I'm, only, I'm one of the lucky ones that actually survived it and, and so I've got my second chance. But I remember when I was in there, I was in there in the hospital with my eldest son who drove me into the hospital that night. And How old was he, Craig? He was about 18, so tough stuff to deal with. But I'll come back to that because he actually looks at that as a positive as well now, which is quite incredible. So, so yeah, so we got to that point and, and, I, and I gave myself a real fright and I just decided there and then, no, this is not good enough. I need to get myself back on my feet. So I made a promise to him and to myself that I would find a way to get myself well, to get myself back on my feet and get my life back. So... Basically what happened, very short version of it, once I was released from, released from hospital, I went home. best thing I did was right at the start, so I basically started taking myself out the lounge room first thing in the morning with a cup of tea and day one I got out a notepad and a pen and I just started writing out all the things that I thought had led me to be in this, in this hole that I was at where, where I made that decision. And, and then through that process I also looked back and, and I'd been taught all heaps of strategies from psychologists and psychiatrists over a three-year period, so much, like 250 hours of clinical sessions I had with all these doctors, right? And they'd all taught me different things, but no one had ever pulled it together. And then so what I did, I, I'd get all the homework that I'd collected from three years, spread it out over my lounge room floor, and I, I wrote a list out of all the strategies and what I decided to do with that was that for those strategies, even some of the ones I didn't even believe in at that point, I thought, give them 100%. So I came up with one small, simple action, how I put each of those strategies in my life from that day on. And they were super small. And because I was really critically unwell. And so basically what I did was come up with my own game plan. And that has been now the, the, the focus of every adversity I've been through in my life since. And there's been some crackers <laughs> since then as well. But every time I do, every time I get to that point now where I feel overwhelmed, where stress is becoming distress, get out the pen and paper. What is your game plan? Well, what are the what are the signs? Uh, for me, like it's pretty much the same signs with burnout. When when you're feeling overwhelmed, where, where your your brain is completely consumed with ruminations, negative thinking, looming catastrophe, self criticism, feelings of failure, where your sleep's going out the window, where your physical health is starting to take a dive because the immune system's compromised from the stress. And 
and this is the thing for me with, with resilience is, is a big part of it, self-awareness as well, like knowing what your triggers points are. What, what are your warning signs that you're really starting to go go under? So whether it's you're becoming really irritable and snappy, losing interest in all the things you, you love doing before, having no energy, sleep going out the window, all those things. My observation, you know, just from people I love and that are close to me that have gone through some pretty tough stuff is that when you're in that the thick of that, feeling very like apathy and, you know, you're no good and all the things you just described, like that's kind of the last thing they think about, you know, is that uh, how do I dig myself out of this? So that's kind of what I want to really drill into is how do they get help when you are in the absolute depths of despair and you feel the, at the worst as you've done around, you know, potential suicidal ideations and things, how do you get out of that? Well, look, there's, there's a, a number of key ingredients for recovery. And the first one is having good professional help around you if you need it. Your GP, mental health care plan, get referred to go and see psychologists. I mean, if through workplaces, you've got EAP is an option as well, employee assistance programs, which are free. So there are options out there. So it's important to find a really good therapist that you feel gets you, that you have a good rapport with, but also a therapist is going to challenge you as well. Therapies, you need an advocate in your therapy, but you also need someone who's going to challenge you sometimes when, when, when you need to be challenged. That, that's one part of it, but also at the bottom foundation there, you need good support from family and friends as well. So having that good social network, friends around you, family around you that can, can help prop you up, keep that hope going. Next part of recovery is self-responsibility, and, and that's sometimes where it falls down. It's, and, and it usually falls down at that point about you know, taking action, committing to your actions, and taking self-responsibility. The biggest risk to that is a lack of hope and belief. If you don't believe you can do it, if you, don't, if you have no hope that you're going to get there, it makes recovery very, very hard. So it's one of the things, that, you know, even writing the book was a big part of providing that hope that if Craig can get through it, I can get through it too. I never promote the way I got well as the number one. Like if you do it the way I did, you'll be, you'll be sweet because everyone's different and everyone's got to find their own strategies that are good for them. Now, for me, things like exercise is a key for me. But for a lot of people, that might not be the thing. Meditation is a big thing for me. For a lot of people, they might not find that, you know, whatever they need in that. So, but it is important for, for recovery and, and even getting through adversity in life. Having a game plan is so important because before I'd actually come up with my game plan for recovery, I had no sense of direction. I had no hope, no belief. I even had some doctors telling me I'll never be well again. So, I mean, it sort of robs you of the motivation to, to try hard and, because of that, I'd fallen into a really negative victim mindset that I had no control over my life anymore. Everything was taken away from me. I was under the care of insurance companies. Had to, you know, all these 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 things where I'd lost control of my life. And, and I was a big, strong bloke who who always had control. And all of a sudden, it was all gone. And but getting that game plan together, what it did was for the first time ever. It, it, well, in those three years, it gave me something to work towards. So it gave me a better sense of hope and direction because I was setting goals for myself, which was important, had the actions. But a big part of that was to the negative way I've been looking at my whole situation for the three years I've been out of the police. So, I mean, one of the first things I identified was I used to use the word suffer a lot. So I'd say if someone asked me why I was not in the police, I'd say I was because I suffer from PDC, I suffer from depression. And one of the first things I decided on in that game plan, that word had to go. I don't say this for everyone. This is just me, but I just I just identified that word suffer with 
okay, well, if you suffer from these illnesses, that means you're their victim, which means they've got control over you. So it's very simple. It's like, you know, a lot of people with cancer, Michelle, I don't suffer from cancer. I live with it. It's like living with it was, and saying I live with depression and PTSD, it's a bit more positive. It was a bit more like, well, we now coexist, me and these illnesses. So that means they don't have control. I'm not their victim anymore. So it was taking back a sense of control over that. But Yeah, I love that. And and words are really powerful, the language around that, especially your own self-talk. Self-talk is su- such an important thing. And I think, uh, and I never use that word suffer again. It doesn't mean to say that people aren't suffering, but I just... I, I just choose not to use the word that I suffer from. It's it's such an important. I, I don't know. It was it was a key to to everything. And it was also fed into where I went from from that as well. Was I looked at those three years after the cops with a sense of loss. It was all I lost my pretty much lost three years of my life. Lost my identity as a policeman. Lost my career. You know all these these things. I lost my family. You know it was one of the things that happened as well, or, or at least my marriage. And I thought, you know, I've got to try and find a, a, a way to turn this negative experience into something positive, and all that loss in the gain. And and that was a key thing. That's where I started you know, doing work as a volunteer for the Black Dog Institute, going out, talk, sharing my story and education with high school kids, all as a volunteer for a couple of years. And that's a big part of resilience too. Is finding something that's going to refill your emotional bucket especially if you're someone who's constantly tipping it out, whether it's for the needs of your family or if it's sick parents or it's, you know, your work or whatever it might be. If that bucket is continually getting empty, you need to find a way to put it all back. And so doing that stuff with those kids was a huge part of my game plan, turning that negative into positive, which is is awesome too. But the main thing with that game plan though was my actions were so small because I wanted to set, and this is where you're talking about people when they're so low, is I set all my actions, so even for for exercise, for instance, I, I made them really small so that I wanted to set my game plan up to to be effective, not when I was at my best, but w- w- actually when I was at my worst. So it minimized the risk of surrender, right? So, so and, and this is how small it was. So for exercise, my exercise strategy was surfing. So my action was all I had to do was put my board in the car, drive down the beach, and if I didn't want to be there because my mood was so low or, or it was whatever the reasons, I knew all my action was all I had to do was get wet. I didn't have to catch a wave. I didn't have to stay out there a certain amount of time. So I'd be sitting down there. Maybe I was really low and I'd just go, mate, oh, God, I don't want to do this. All you've got to do is get wet. So grab your board, just get wet, and then you can go home. And the thing with that was nine times out of ten, once I jumped in the water, Instantly, I'm already feeling better, so I'd go out and catch a few waves. So, look, it's a really simple way of describing how small the game plan was as far as actions goes because the thing with it, start small, you can build on it over time as well, and that's basically what I did. So you decided to write a book. I'm curious about the title. Where did that come from? It actually came from a journalist. So Penelope Green, who's a freelance journalist, and she does work for the Newcastle Herald up here where I live, and... They did an article on me in the Weekend magazine and she titled it The Cop Who Fell to Earth. When my book was finished and I was trying to think of a title for it, like I thought, why, why reinvent something? That is just it's my, my story basically. What does that mean? Describe that in terms of what does that mean for you now, the journey you've been on and the work you do now, you know, described in that title. Yeah, it's a good point. Like it, basically when I was in my career in law enforcement, I was on an upward trajectory so I was – Flying high, you know. I was felt myself bulletproof. Uh, I had a big ego, and I sort of needed it, that ego, to have the confidence to do the work I was doing. But it didn't make me the nicest person either. 
so I had a big chip on my shoulder and all that, and those sort of things too. And but you know, it's soaring up in that upwards trajectory. Like I said before, everything goes up's got to come down, and and basically that's what happened to me. I did fall back to earth, and and as a result of that whole experience, and this is one of the things I talk about a lot about resilience with adversity. It's like I've come out of that whole that whole journey and everything that's gone on in my life since then as well. I've come out a better person as a result of that. And I think that's sort of reflected in the title. It just as soon as as soon as I read it, I thought that it just fits me to a T. And she did such a good job. And I've, I've recognized her in the book for that. And it's a perfect fit for me where I am now, Michelle. Yeah, it's lovely. You said before that you wouldn't change a thing about the life and everything you've gone through. Having your 18-year-old son, you know, have to take you to hospital and be with you with what you went through and you said he he has you know it's been a positive impact can you talk a bit more about that some of the things that that i realized when i was out and i was going through all my, my problems I, I knew it would be a challenge for my kids but the thing was it also made me so much more mentally aware about mental health and, and so i remember one of the things i did was I made organize an appointment for each of my three boys with my psychologist so that they would at least get a bit of a sense of what it was like to go and experience what a psychologist appointment was like so if they ever needed it, it, it that fear of the unknown would, would be taken care of but even with my eldest son you know all those experiences he actually said to me it wasn't that long ago he's had a career in the military and he said dad it was tough but a lot of the things that i experienced with you i've now been able to use those you know that knowledge and experience to help so many of his his old workmates in the army and, and other people in his life too so he doesn't look at it as a negative, he looks at, at, at the whole thing as a positive as well. And I don't know. So I got asked this question once at a, at a men's forum uh, where I did a talk and, and someone actually asked me, Craig, you've, you've talked about, you know, making a lot of mistakes over all this period of time. If you could go back and change any of it, would you? And it was a great question because the honest answer was no. And as, as much as I've made some stupid mistakes and I've done some things I regret, really all of those things combined, all that calamity, all the chaos in my life, it's definitely made me the, the person I am now, and, and without all that, I wouldn't be who I am. So I'm actually grateful in, in some ways that, I mean, the Quest for Life Foundation is an organisation where part of my sales of my book is going to these guys because they do such a great job and they look after people with trauma. And, and one of their, 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 their phrases that, that they use is, is something called post-traumatic growth. I've come out the other side of this a better person than I was beforehand, and that's pretty cool. What a what an experience to go through and then have that silver lining. Craig, you're an amazing human. It's so awesome to meet with you. Thank you for sharing your story today. It really is uh, incredible and all the work you do with everyone around the country and around the world. Thank you, Michelle, and thanks for the opportunity to come on. Awesome to meet you. Well, there you have it. Wasn't that an incredible conversation? I hope you enjoyed it as much as I've enjoyed bringing it to you. If you did like it, can I ask a small favour? Please rate and review on your listening platform for me. I know everyone asks this, but it seriously makes a difference to help get these conversations out in the world and makes all the hard work and effort I put into this for you all the more worthwhile. And until next time, if you have one question you'd like to ask me, hit me up on my socials or jump on my website, michellejcox.com.